Welcome to the We as Citizens podcast. Here is your host, Christina Crowley. Welcome to the podcast. Today I have with me Marissa Cohen. Marissa is a true master who has helped thousands break their silence and take control of their abusive pasts. She empowers warriors to take their life by storm, break the silence, and reinvent their lives. Jack Canfield called her. She is a light for all. Welcome, Marissa. I'm proud to have you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you or your story. Of course. So when I was 19 is when my story started. Um, I went to college for the first time, met this guy who was incredibly charming and funny and thoughtful. He would do little things that made me smile. He made me feel so wanted and so happy. And so we got into a relationship and it pretty much turned sour within that month. He started to um, be verbally abusive. He would tell me the things that I thought were dumb and that I was stupid and my opinions were stupid. He would, he would constantly demean me in front of our peers and colleagues and make it seem like I had no idea of anything I was talking about, which was a real shame. And because he started out so thoughtful and charming, I didn't really see the quick progression to abusive and manipulative and controlling. And I was so smitten, you know, by him that I just kind of let everything go and justified all of his actions. And then it got worse and worse. And I could feel that something was wrong, but I didn't know that it was abuse because I had never been taught. I didn't know that the things he was doing and saying were were wrong because we never learned about it. And I grew up in a great household with a mom and dad who were compassionate and there and available, but I still didn't have the romantic experience yet because he was my first real boyfriend. So I didn't really recognize that what I was going through was not the normal type of relationship. And so then um, fast forward a couple months in January, we had only been together for about three months. He forced himself on me and that's how I lost my virginity and it completely rewired my brain. It was, I didn't feel, I didn't feel anything, but it didn't feel right to me. And it, it convinced me that sex, you know, he convinced me rather that sex was about, you know, a girlfriend loving her boyfriend. And I did feel at that moment that I loved him. So I thought that I owed it to him and not recognizing that it being forced on me wasn't right. So a couple months later, um, within the, le- the next couple months, I was severely depressed. I couldn't get out of bed. I barely showered. I mean, it was a complete 180 to what my normal personality was. And then until finally later in that year, it just kind of came out of me like word vomit. I hadn't talked about it before, but I was in the car with my friend and we were driving just around and spending time together. And I told her everything. I lost, I lost control of my emotions, had a full on panic attack while operating a car. And she had to pull our car over while I was in the driver's seat to the shoulder. And then I just told her everything. I told her everything I'd gone through and it made me feel so much better. I mean, it wasn't a hundred percent healing, but it was the first time in 
almost a year that I felt lighter and I felt heard and I felt comfortable in my skin. And so from then on, I wanted to feel that way always. And so I started trying to find ways to talk about it and people to talk about it with. And I realized that the more I spoke about it, the easier it became to speak about it and the easier it became to process it. And so I was determined to do everything in my power to help other people who had experienced something similar to what I had also feel the way that I was feeling and let go and speak their truth and break their silence. So that fast forward a couple of years, I published my first book, Breaking Through the Silence, The Journey to Surviving Sexual Assault which was my stories mixed with 19 other survivors to serve other survivors who had not spoken out yet and make them feel like there are people that are relatable to them and that they aren't alone. And they have this huge community of people who are here to support them. So that's, that's my background. (laughs) But I want to add that that book was a bestseller. I think that, you know, that's something really something for you to be very proud of. We talked a little bit before this and we talked a little bit about the stereotype of a victim. Tell us a little bit about what you meant by that and and what people may find in knowing that. Absolutely. So I think society paints this picture of a perfect victim, right? It's a young woman who is forlorn and devastated all the time and can't feed herself and can't function in society. And unless you fit that stereotype, you aren't a real victim, according to society. Now, that's not true. Um, Victims come in and survivors come in all shapes and sizes, genders, socioeconomic statuses. And I think I think that's a big thing that we as a society need to change because I think it contributes a lot, contributes a lot to victim blaming. Taking me, for example, I am a bubbly personality. I've always been a people person. Um, After what happened to me for a short period of time, I was very shy. But then when I started healing, I was this outgoing people person, loud, outspoken human. And people didn't believe that I had gone through some of the horrors that I had. And that was really disheartening to me because I, I did, sur- I survived what I went through and I deserve credit for that. And anyone who goes through emotional abuse, narcissism, sexual assault, domestic violence, and are still here today, you're a survivor and you deserve the credit for being a survivor without people doubting you. And on top of those stereotypes, there's victim shaming and blaming that just adds to that, uh, you know, and that may not be, it may just be cues that you're hearing from other people, but yet it also may be personal along with those stereotypes that people place on you. Talk about that type of a victim shaming, blaming. Sure. So victim blaming is putting any part of the onus on the survivor and sharing the, the blame from the survivor and the abuser. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay because the abuser, the perpetrator is the person who makes the choice to offend. The victim or the survivor has zero say in the situation. And so by asking questions that might put some pressure on the survivor to have maybe acted differently or worn something differently, that is, that is 
point blank victim blaming. Victim blaming is just, it's an incorrect way to talk to survivors. It is allowing them to feel responsible for what happened to them. And that is not okay. So by asking questions like, well, were you drinking? Did you do drugs? What were you wearing? Maybe you shouldn't have been in that position. You should have known better. You knew that person had a reputation. Those, regardless of the situation, the experience was not the survivor's fault. And to give them any credit for being a part of or allowing this to happen to them is not okay. So to be a good advocate, the best thing you can do is listen, be an active listener, validate their feelings and the way that they are feeling and acting and behaving, and just be a good support system for them. Listening is the number one thing you can do. Listening with non-judgment. Don't ask questions that will force them to feel responsible don't say things that'll make them feel responsible because it is not their fault in any way, shape or form. Things that I know that I've heard in my own life are, oh, he comes from such a good family. Is that a type of denial, shaming, blaming? It is kind of absolving accountability. It's telling people that, oh, well, they would never do that because they're from a good family. I mean, my abuser came from a very wealthy family whose father was very well known in the community. And so I think a lot of his control issues stemmed from not feeling good enough, but that doesn't make what he did my fault. Exactly. And I think more and more people of who you would turn to, such as nurses, uh, emergency room people, sometimes police, they're better trained in handling this. Do you feel that it's helped from what you, your knowledge is of helping people? In a way, yes. Um, the police can be a really good resource if your local police are trained correctly. Um, but I have, in my experience, law enforcement has not been the greatest help outside of maybe child abuse cases um, for adults and people who are in their late teens who have experienced abuse. Um, mm -hmm. I don't always recommend it unless you really have a ton of evidence and are looking forward to four years of being re-victimized. Yeah. Nurses, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's really the judicial system and the way that they handle sexual assault and domestic violence is really embarrassing. Mm -hmm. For example, as recently as the 90s, police officers, when they would receive domestic violence calls, would go to the house, knock on the door, ask this victim, who was usually a woman, but not always, ask the victim what they did to anger the abuser, and then tell the abuser to go take a walk until they cool off. So you're not actually diffusing anything. You're endangering the life of the survivor even more. And about 40% of female homicide victims have previously made domestic violence uh, reports. Yes, because this isn't always a stranger. I would say from my research, most of the time it's somebody we know. 90% of the time it's an acquaintance or better. So only 10% of the time is it some random person jumped out of a bush, sexually assaulted somebody, and then ran away. It very rarely happens. And if we take into account that the 
amount of actual cases that are reported to the police is about 5%. So that's a really, really, really small number. And you touched on something that is really important that I want to go back to that, uh, you know, victims of assault aren't just women, uh, you know, they're men. How many, what percentage of cases do you know that are probably men? So the most recent statistic has been one in five men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And one in four men will be in an abusive relationship and be the survivor. There's a lot of stereotypes that we put upon these people who have had uh, violent, have had a violent experience. And sometimes it doesn't leave necessarily physical bruises that you can see because they can be covered up. The judgments we get from, you know, family members or friends, how do we change those types of interactions? Uh, well, not interactions. How do we, how do we change that type of, I don't know, uh, stigma put upon by our friends and family? I think truly the best thing we can do is educate them. Because people don't innately know how to react to traumatic or uncomfortable situations. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you and I were having a conversation, let's say, and I, without knowing my background, just said, oh, you know, well, um, my boyfriend was abusive. Your Im immediate reaction would probably be like, oh, God, what do I say here? Yeah. And so if we come at it from that perspective and think, okay, we're dropping a bomb on these people, telling them about something that happened to us. And if it's, I mean, if it's by a stranger or a, you know, a significant other or a friend, that's one thing. But if it's from a family member and you're telling family, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole set of bombs. Um, and so they're going to be uncomfortable unless they know how to respond. So the best thing we can do is educate them, tell people, this is what I need from you, right? I just need you to listen. I want to vent and I need you to just be here and hug me or don't um, sit here and just be in, in my space with me while I talk about this because I really need you. And that's really, really hard to do for some people, especially if this is the first person you're telling because you don't even know how to process what you've gone through yet, let alone someone else having to sit there and be with you while you process, right? And they need to process it too. So violence is so prevalent in our society. What can we realistically do to curb domestic violence, sexual assault? What is it that we can do? Honestly, I think that also comes down to education. The problem is we never learned, learned in school what is domestic violence? What is sexual assault? What is inappropriate behavior? I remember one time we had one assembly where they talked about loveisrespect.org. And that is an organization that is dedicated to safe relationships in your teenage years. But we never expanded on it. And if we missed that assembly, then we never learned it. That's it. But we'll spend six weeks learning about STDs. So I think the problem is our education system is afraid to address it because they don't know what parents will feel or if it'll disrupt the household. But who cares? If people don't know, they don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And that's such a, a redundant sentence. But if you think about it and you break it down, 
I never in a million years would have known that somebody telling me my opinions are stupid would be domestic violence. Like somebody, somebody slapping me across the face. Yeah, that's domestic violence. I know that, you know, but, but somebody undermining me and demeaning me in front of people, I had no clue that that was impacting my life the way it did. I mean, physical violence is awful, but words stick. And any type of violence is horrendous. But if we spend time educating kids what's appropriate and what's inappropriate behavior, good touch, bad touch, all of it, you know, then I think we'd have a much better society because people would be able to catch on to those red flags mm-hmm. and have the verbiage to express what's happening instead of just being confused and normalizing and rationalizing everything. Yeah, I know growing up, I was so amazed at my friends or other people in my class who knew those red flags, who could put up the, you know, the say stop, knowing what those red flags were. And I had no idea. And so, how do we balance the, uh, my parents don't want me to learn anything, but, and the school won't teach me because the parents don't want me to know. And there's also the parents think, well, teaching them that will make it happen. How do you balance that? What, what can we realistically do? Because I know my sisters are teachers and, you know, parents aren't going to teach it. How can, you know, how can the school teach it? I mean, we rely on the school as basically, I'm going to say that babysitters. (laughs) (laughs) And in a lot of ways we do, because you have two parents working and it costs money to have kids in, in daycare. And we do need kids to learn. So, you know, it seems like a real damned if you do, damned if you don't, uh, when it comes to protecting our children. We say we want to, but then we don't want to. That's really tough um, because ultimately, I mean, yes, the schools can educate and they can give a very well-rounded explanation of what domestic violence is and what appropriate and inappropriate touches. But I think the people that kids most respect and listen to are parents, whether you agree with me or not, we mirror and learn so much from our parents and what we see at home. And I know that there's a lot of issues with people saying, oh, well, if I teach them about suicide, they're going to commit suicide. Or if I teach them about, you know, sex, they're going to go have sex. And from my experience, that is quite literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Being informed doesn't give people an invitation to do things. My mom started talking to me about sex. I can think as far back as before fourth grade, because by the time I got to fourth grade, I knew what sex was and it might seem young, but at least I was informed and she didn't tell me, you know, oh, sex is when the man does this. It, it wasn't like that. It was, it was slow. She would tell me pieces at a time. She would give me, you know, advice about this is a good touch, bad touch, that people shouldn't touch me here, not doctors, not coaches, not friends, not parents of friends. And if they do, that I should feel comfortable to come to her and tell her, and I will not be in trouble. I mean, it it is so, it's a safety precaution 
to talk to your kids, to let them be informed, to let them make their own decisions. The kids who go out and have sex and get pregnant when they're young are the kids who don't know how to be safe about it. They're the kids who are not informed about sex. The kids who go to college and end up having their stomachs pumped or dying of alcohol poisoning are the kids whose parents never taught them about alcohol, who never let them smell it or taste it or be around it and vilified it. Those are the kids that are the most at risk. And it's the same thing with domestic violence, sexual assault, sex. If they don't know, they cannot defend themselves. They cannot be equipped to handle situations like that. So I guess this is my PSA. I urge you as parents to have these conversations with your kids, even if they're uncomfortable. And if you want to, you know, really, really, I don't know, make it stick, have the older kids teach the younger kids. I had to teach my little brother how to put a condom on a banana and it was embarrassing. And it made me not want to have sex for a long time because I didn't want to imagine having to watch my brother put a condom on a banana. Because there are so many things we can do to, to teach kids about things. And I think that does help them be safe uh, because we don't know who the perpetrators are you know, that the perpetrators can see who their victim is. Does it help you pick out who might be a perpetrator or to stay away from them? Knowledge is always power. The more you know, the more you can see. Like I said before, we don't know what we don't know. So we can't see things that we don't recognize. So my short answer is sort of. Um, it can give people the foresight to know, oh, if my mom told me when I was younger that if a guy told me I was stupid, then that's bad and I shouldn't accept that. So they can see it like that. You know, they can see little red flags and little yellow flags and be more capable of expressing that and recognizing it and making a choice to avoid it. But that doesn't guarantee anything. I mean, like with my story, for example, my abuser was charming and kind and thoughtful until he wasn't. And so had I had knowledge of what rape is and what abuse is, I would have probably been better equipped to leave before it got as bad as it did. Would I have? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But at least it would have given me the ability to see what was happening and make an informed decision whether I chose to stay or leave I would have had the option and you did choose to leave and did you leave during those first months with him after he raped you how did you how did you leave so what ended up happening was he raped me on January 15th 2010 that day I celebrate every year celebrate's not the right word but I I do something nice on that day every year. Um, and by March 15th or 17th, whichever one is St. Patrick's Day. So on March 17th, um, I left him. I had had enough of him bullying me, of him making me feel bad. And honestly, it only happened because we were at a party and he was grabbing my arm and dragging me around the house. And he was glaring at me from across the room. And anytime any 
person came near me, he would interject and be just really awful. And we were at a party, small party with a lot of our friends. And, and this one stranger was there and he sat with me on the steps while I wrote in a notebook that I carried with me everywhere. And he's like, why is he being like that to you? That's not right. I would never treat my girlfriend like that. And that was just a light bulb. I needed one person, a stranger who I had met that night to tell me that's not right. I wouldn't treat a girl like that. I wouldn't treat someone I love like that for me to be like, holy cow, this is not okay. And then that night I broke up with him on our friend's driveway. And then we were on and off for another six months, but you know, at least I was able to, because I had now gained knowledge that this was not right, been able to make an informed decision to say, holy cow, I shouldn't be here anymore because this stranger would treat me better than my boyfriend. And I think that's an important thing in teaching young women. We don't take this kind of treatment in not teaching women. Do you think that it gives us less resources or wherewithal within ourselves to go find that safe place? Cause we don't know that we weren't taught that that's really bad and that's not how relationships are, or we had parents that fought. So we think maybe that's what's normal. So we don't know. So we don't go looking for that safe place when we see those red flags that we maybe we push those red flags down. I think that what we grow up watching is what we normalize. So in my opinion, even with education in school, if they were to put in this program where they only teach you about safe dates and safe relationships and things like that and the resources that are available at various ages, no matter what they teach you at school, what you come home to is your normal. And so I think that it really roots from there. So again, the short answer would be yes. Um, I think that the knowledge and and the tools and the teaching would give people the authority to feel and, and weigh out whether or not their relationship was healthy. However, I think that it starts in the home. Yeah. I think that what we see is what we learn, right? Monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm. And that is what shapes how we perceive love. Cause I grew up in a mining town and there was violence everywhere. I grew up in a very Catholic town. There was violence everywhere and sexual abuse. And we moved away. And then I went back to college and I saw some of those old friends. And, and I couldn't put it together even then that somehow they came from this household. We came from this town. And yet they got out and they were functioning well. There is that, that special something that I don't know how it happened. And so I do feel like there, there, there has to be a place for schools to, to teach right and wrong. Absolutely. I, I, I do very much think that there should be education in schools for what is safe in relationships. And that's incredible that people that you grew up with got out and were able to see clearly for lack of a better word, you know, be able to express themselves. I think the, the, root of the problem is that we don't, we don't know. And until we know, right. So now I can be in a room filled with people, see a couple interactions between a couple and be like, okay, well, that person is probably not good to, you know, yeah. this person at home, yeah. but that's because I'm so well-versed in it. Yeah. 
once you know the signs, you can't unsee the signs. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I'm probably not very fun at parties anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so how prevalent is it in our society that there's either domestic violence or sexual abuse or rape? Um, it is extremely prevalent. So I had mentioned before that only about 5% of cases are reported to the police. And that number is what we base our inferred statistic that one in three women will be raped, one in four men will be verbally, I'm sorry, uh, physically abused, and one in five men will be sexually assaulted. We don't really have the, the true numbers because those numbers don't, because the people don't speak up, right? So we're seeing now since the Me Too movement and all of the work that's being done in society to change the stigmas and encourage people to speak out, we're seeing people coming forward in droves talking about their abuse and hashtagging speaking out and Me Too and all these things. It is so prevalent. I can, I can go through in my head and I think maybe one or two women in my life that I know of have not been in either an abusive relationship or sexually assaulted or both yeah. Two, And I talk to everybody. I am a social butterfly. And, and as far as violence goes and abusers, I absolutely am very choosy about who I surround myself with because I don't really want to be around toxic people. I don't feel the need to, to expose myself to that. But I do know that in friend groups, I have abusers in my friend groups. I know that, but I can't do anything about it until their spouses or significant others are ready to make a move. Yeah. And it's really disheartening. It's so hard to be in that position. Do you think anybody saw the signs of what may have happened to you before that guy at the party, before you broke down to your friend while driving the car? Uh, yes. My family, like I said before, has, they're very, we're a very close family. And so they saw that something was wrong, but I wasn't talking about what he was doing. So they didn't know. They just knew that I was severely depressed. They knew that I wasn't calling friends or spending time outside or doing things that I enjoyed anymore. I was going to school, going to work, coming home. And that was it. That would, had become my life. And so my mom started making a point to call my friends and just have them come over and be there on Saturday mornings when I was home. They would just show up. And I had no idea that she was the one making the calls. They were just always around because she knew that something was wrong. And my friends saw my personality shifting and changing for the worse. And so they all wanted to be around me, but they didn't know why. Yeah. And I think with a little bit of training, whether it be for your friends, for maybe growing up or maybe even the parents, you know, they might have been able to put their finger on it a little bit faster and getting you some help. Maybe. maybe I think had I think had we had we known had I known that what was happening was wrong I could have talked about it more or brought it up to someone or gone to therapy you know any of those things but I didn't know what was really wrong I didn't even know that he could rape me I had no idea that that could be considered rape and I had done a ton of research on sexual assault and rape early in my life like just 
kind of, it was, it intrigued me that, that this could happen to people. So it's not that I didn't know what it was. I just didn't realize that my boyfriend could be the one doing it to me. Mm-hmm. I rationalized it thinking, oh, well, when, when I, when you love somebody, when you love your partner, you just do that. And so maybe the way I'm feeling, you know, is, is normal. Maybe that like emptiness and that, you know, need to fill a void that I was feeling was normal. And I didn't know who to talk to about it. Yeah. And it, cause I think it's only been the past, oh, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years that it's been that a spouse or a boyfriend, somebody you are connected with uh, romantically can rape you. I, I think you know, it's, it's been it's just a very short time. Absolutely. And it's still not really recognized whenever you say to somebody. So here's an example. One of my closest friends that I met through doing this work was in a relationship and she didn't feel like having sex that day. I don't know. She was in a bad mood or cranky or just didn't feel like it. I don't I didn't ask for that detail, but her boyfriend took advantage of her and and raped her that day and they were they had had sex a hundred times before a thousand even and she didn't know why this one felt different it just felt awful and so when she tried to tell somebody they were like but you've had sex with him before you know what's the difference who cares but the difference is that she didn't want it and the difference is that that was sexual assault and the difference is that that was a violation of her body and of her trust and of everything And so rationalizing it as, oh, well, you've had sex with them before. So what's different now? That's toxic because you don't, you don't owe anybody anything ever. If I consent to having sex with somebody today, that doesn't mean that I consent to having sex with them tomorrow. It means that today I said, yes, tomorrow I might not. And that's okay. And that is it's not okay for them to do it anyways. You know, so your friend tells you something like that or a sibling, someone in your life, and you you recognize that was violence. What do you do? What do I do? What does somebody do? I, I have a conversation with one of my friends and and I see that, you know, they, they tell me something just like what you told me. It, it, you know, it felt different this time. What do I do? What do I say? First thing first, you validate their feelings, always validate their feelings. You know, what they're feeling is, is correct because it's what they're feeling and that you're here to listen or do whatever you need to do that they want you to do. Right. So if they want you to take them for a sane exam, then you do that. If they want to just sit and talk about it, you do that. If they don't want to sit and talk about it, but would rather do something else to take their mind off it, you do that. The whole problem, I think the whole outcome of sexual assault and domestic violence is that the control is being taken away from us, right? So when somebody takes sex without our consent or hurts us emotionally, psychologically, verbally, or physically, the control is not in our hands. And so what is the most important thing to do is in that moment, give that person control back because you're giving them permission non-verbally to take their life back that is such an important thing for us is to be able to say this situation i'm in control 
and for you as a support network or a family member or a friend to, to give that to them. That's the best present you can give them. And so you got help and you have rebuilt your life and you have, and I don't want to say the wrong thing here. You have, for lack of a better word, you've gone into your future and you help women. You've written a book, you've written a bestseller. What I found about you is that you have quite the bucket list. And so tell me a little bit about that. So I, Jack Canfield is a mentor of mine. He's a friend of mine and I adore him. And one of the things that he had me do in his success principles was write 101 things that I want to do, see, be, or have. And I am a big list maker anyways. (laughs) So I sat down in front of the discovery channel and the travel channel and just kept writing. I just kept thinking of all the things I want to do. And I think my bucket list is over 300 items now. (laughs) It's extensive and it looks like a lot of fun. And you've done some of those things too. I look where you've marked that you've done a lot of them. I have. Um, I am a goal setter. So one of the things that I've always wanted to do is play with penguins as silly as that sounds, because penguins are just so stinking cute, right? They're always dressed in tuxedos and they just waddle around. What could not be blissful about spending time with penguins? So for my birthday a couple of years ago, my now fiance took me to go play with penguins at the aquarium and I got to go check that off my bucket list. (laughs) That's so cool. That is the one thing that really did stick out to me that I thought was fun. And and that's quite life-affirming. So you are proof that you can lead a full life and you can have goals and go for what you want and take back your own power. And you do teach. I don't know if you teach or you speak, but tell us how you help other women. Sure. So I help people in a couple ways and I, I help both women, uh, all, all genders. Um, as a coach, I have a coaching program, um, a methodology to healing, a philosophy that I've created called the healing from emotional abuse philosophy. And it spans more than just emotional abuse. It can help you if you've endured physical abuse and verbal abuse, um, narcissism, and also sexual assault. But there are three major keys that you have to hit on and they need to be working in conjunction with each other in order for this formula to work. But the first key is to release your, release your trauma And there's a lot of ways to do that based on your personality and based on your preference and things that you are capable of doing. Then there's resilience, building up resilience so that you can have the strength to let things bounce off you. As a survivor, we usually internalize a lot of negative things and then we repeat them to ourselves. So other people set us in motion, but we're the ones really doing the horrible damage to ourselves after the fact. And then the final step is to rebuild, to recreate your circle of friends, to rebuild your life, to set goals like my bucket list and accomplish them because nothing makes you feel better than being able to check something off your bucket list. So I, I work with people in that way. I also have resilience building programs and rebuilding programs, online courses that people can take. I do speak. I love speaking at colleges and helping people that are right around the age that I was when I was going through what I was going through, see red flags and the signs of toxic relationships and be more capable to get out when they want to or to see through what is happening to them and be able to make 
better choices and have healthier relationships. Yeah. Cause I think that's important because you want to, when you're in the midst of it, you don't see it necessarily a way out. And I think you're an inspiration for men and women who may have experienced some sort of violence in their life. So I, I do applaud you for that. Thank you so much. What would you like to, to leave us with? What words about either you or your life or getting through something would you like to leave us with? That's such a good question. So I want people to know who have experienced abuse or assault that what happened to them doesn't define them, right? What happens to you doesn't define you. It's the actions you take after that determine who you are and who you will be. So being able to step forward and accept help from people, um, working with a therapist or a coach or taking courses and educating yourself is so important because we so often are re-victimized because we choose to ignore the problem and hope that it'll, it'll just go away, but it won't go away. It sticks with you forever. And so, or at least until you address it. So know that you're not alone. Um, and accept help from people. We don't get into these situations alone, right? There's somebody else that's hurting us. There's somebody else there that's doing the real damage. So why try and get out of it alone? You're not alone. Accept the help. Recognize that you have a whole team, a whole slew of people around the world who are here to support you and help you through this and, and just do it. It's hard work, but it's, it pays off tenfold. And I will put your information on the website for anybody who wants it. The, the links will be there. They can just click and go to your website and, and listen to your podcast uh, that you also have. And uh, uh, thank you so much for being with me today. I do appreciate you coming and, and talking about this today. It's not talked about enough. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much for having me and for asking the hard questions and doing this incredible service for people who need it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The We as Citizens podcast, because conversation matters.